0: what it means to be one of the sector's critically important, yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis.
1: Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I would like to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical tasks, developing deep personal relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Colleagues, is your organization thinking about a capital campaign, hiring a new development officer, or taking your fundraising efforts to another level? How about inviting myself and another member of Responsive's consulting team to facilitate a two-day sense-making experience for your team? Our two-day sense-making retreats are custom-designed to ensure that your entire team is Making sense of what's most working in your favor and what's getting in your way. If this sounds like something you might be interested in, click the simple form in the show notes, and we'll be happy to arrange an introductory call. Hi, Michelle. I am delighted to have you today on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. You and I have gotten to know each other. We've talked about doing some collaboration together. Um, we've. Uh, it's been a tough. I, I know it's been a tough sort of month on your end of the world, and um, so I guess it's kind of been a tough. Uh, month for a lot of people around around the world, but I'm glad that we uh, found this time here at the end of June to get together and have this conversation. Before we uh, dive into today's conversation, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Yeah, absolutely. My name is Michelle Flores-Bren, and I am the Chief Development Officer at the One Star Foundation, which is based in Austin, Texas. Uh, I also have like several other affiliations people may know me through. I'm very involved in the Donor Participation Project, which is a group that primarily uh, links up on LinkedIn and very involved as well in community centric fundraising and AFP Global uh, various committees and task force. So and on my eight to five, I'm a frontline fundraiser, but also very involved in the sector at large.
1: Okay. So you're involved in a number of conversations and here you are letting another guy sort of involved in another conversation. <laughs> yeah. So what, uh, before we dive into, and maybe this will sort of enlighten me on the, uh, the, the big idea or bold opinion that you bring to us today, Michelle, but when, when you're involved in sort of those three conversations, right, those, the uh, sort of the AFP conversation, the, community-centered conversation and then the, uh, the conversation that the donor participation uh, project is sort of, uh, is merging from that group. What sort of emerges from the blend, do you think? What sort of, what sort of, what sort of rises to the surface? You know
2: what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I think that <laughs> in those various uh, smoothies of conversation that you get from those different groups, there is yeah. a commonality. And yeah. I think you know it, it kind of boils down to what we're doing as a discipline of fundraising, but also as the sector as problem solvers. And are we doing that well? Are we doing that effectively? And I don't think for us being problem solvers in the nonprofit world, that's not unique to us. I do believe, like all disciplines, if you zoom out high enough when you boil it down, we're all problem solvers. Like yeah. architects are solving problems, you know, yeah. design problems with physical spaces. And musicians and actors are problem solving to find the right medium and delivery of expression. And nonprofits are obviously problem solvers for these social, huge social issues that we have. And, you know, I could even say maybe we're like the ultimate problem solvers. Yeah. <laughs> but one thing that in these conversations that comes out with these various groups is are we problem solving in the right way? And I think a lot of us do believe that our strategy or mindset towards problem solving Mm -hmm. is flawed. And I think there's many reasons for this, but like the thread I want to tug on here today is I think that we need to do a better job of harvesting the collective intelligence from other disciplines to perfect our own approach in fundraising.
1: Okay, so I know where you're going to go with that, but let me but hold on to the the previous set of thoughts is there a is there sort of a um uh, an intolerance or a uh, um, passivity? It seems like kind of there's a passivity that's been assumed of the role, especially in i'm I'm speaking very specifically to fundraisers, and so when I think about everything that you just sort of said, that smoothie of of uh, what I tend to refer to as angst, that smoothie of angst that's sort of emerging from these number of conversations. There's sort of a passivity that I think the organizations themselves have historically expected of both the donor and the fundraiser, that now that we're becoming this, to use your term, problem solvers, problem solvers don't sit back and act passive. They don't just sort of intervene and, and sort of provide resources. They, they play a more more active role. Is that in there too?
2: Oh my gosh. Yes. A hundred percent. And I think like the various groups have varying levels of comfort with how do I step into that role? What does that really look like? Where are the boundaries? You know, I think we feel differently about that based on the group you're talking to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so I think some of the, uh, the brief dialogue that you and I've had both online and offline, um, along the lines of your 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 opinion that you bring to the conversation today is sort of this appreciation of sort of an interdisciplinary or sort of a cross-disciplinary um, necessity and timeliness. Um, unpack that for us.
2: Yeah, so one thing I didn't mention in my intro, but it's pertinent here, is I do have an academic background in cultural anthropology. That's what yes. I have my bachelor's and master's in, and I'm still involved in the field. And I'm also involved in groups that are trying to get applied anthropology to be more interwoven in the nonprofit sector. And I think that's kind of hard to do because a lot of people don't really even understand what anthropology is. So they definitely don't can't make the link to how should that benefit the nonprofit sector. But I do think that coming from a background in social science and social science research gives me a different lens to which I approach problems. And for me, like in fundraising specifically, I started fundraising at a university environment as a development assistant Yeah, way back in the day. And I think because at the same time I was steeped in graduate research, which was all about values theory, that I quickly like jumped to the conclusion that, oh, like fundraising overtly is building relationships and that's true, but underneath the surface, what's really happening is like this values exchange.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, I think, I think there was a comment that I made on LinkedIn, I don't know, six, eight weeks ago um, there. And, and, and that was when you were, actually it's probably been longer than that, but that's when you, sh- you shared with me your, your, um, your appreciation of sort of cultural studies and your anthropology sort of background and um, what I have been spending a lot of time with my own research recently is really getting to know the, these these differences between um, modes of exchange and that an anthropologist and a sociologist will generally recognize that that the way that we exchange, the way that we sort of exchange resources, right? So whatever it is that we're exchanging, and in, in, in the case of fundraising, we're talking about monetary resources. But there's actually sort of a difference, and and I don't know that... I don't know that we in the fundraising space have sort of made sense of that so so I'm right there with you but i I don't want to hijack the conversation I don't want to take it down the path of my my own research <laughs> so um from a from a from a high level if you were sort of if you were creating uh if you were sort of uh writing that sort of uh that that smoothie uh agenda what, what would it be uh through that through that lens that you're talking about
2: yeah i mean I think you know Not to get like too nerdy here, but I think a a big distinction is for people to understand uh, the distinction between gifts, which are more like personalized exchanges and commodities, which are depersonalized exchanges. And so I think, you know, in fundraising, we're talking about gifts and these are personalized exchanges, but what makes them personal are that those values that are being transferred in these interactions. And so if you're building from that, one as a fundraiser should really be interested and concerned with what values are being fulfilled by donors through this behavior. And we should really concentrate a lot of our time around answering that question. And to answer that question, you have to get to know your donors, right? And so this kind of gets into the lane one, lane two, lane three yes,
0: fundraising yes. model
2: that you have. And to really understand what values are sh- showing up in, in the you know front stage here, you have to know people like you have to spend time to really extract information from donors. And you have to sit with that and really think about, you know, what is meaningful to them. And so you can't really get that in your, of course, lane one fundraising, like your um, interactions that aren't getting you face to face with someone or, you know, zoom eyeball to zoom eyeball, maybe in, in some cases.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've been reading a lot of. Uh, so I, I think the book. A lot of us are familiar with Moss's work, but for example, a much more present day sort of um, uh, vein of thought that has been sitting on my desk and I've been working through his book uh, in a number of ways is Hyde, Lewis Hyde's book. And he talks about the difference largely between commodities and gifts. And, and, and when I sort of boil it down, which is oftentimes what we're trying to do at Responsive for Our Clients is that in order for a gift to be a true gift it has to it has to be preceded by a genuine relationship if there's no relationship there it's no there's no gift and so therefore the experience the exchange itself the exchange of money becomes more like a commodity exchange like we experience it at at you know Walmart and Target or when we buy a cheeseburger at the at McDonald's um, and i think that that's sort of my, I think that's sort of one of those underlying themes and what my, my primary concern is about the way that contemporary fundraising sort of plays out is that we seem to have designed it where it can, it can largely function absent a relationship. The relationship doesn't have to necessarily happen. You know, you think about giving, giving Tuesday, for example, and any given Tuesday, you can, you can yield exponentially, you know, extraordinary, extraordinary numbers of gifts. But it doesn't necessarily uh, uh, doesn't it's not necessarily preceded or even followed by a by a relationship right.
2: right yes, and I think for me, Jason, I sit back and wonder, why are we comfortable with this mode right yeah. what yeah. made, what brought us to the stage so that we can try to like counteract or counterbalance uh where we're at, and I think a lot of it you know is taking frameworks and theories and models from other disciplines. And I think that we're really bad at what I call having like source amnesia. Like we adopt these things like a sales funnel type model, but we don't really understand the context for which these things were made. And then we just apply them to our own work. And I and I really feel like because we're so strapped for resources and have the scarcity mindset, it's extremely hard for us as a sector to do a pivot in thinking than it would be like in other sectors, because it just seems like so much, right? Like he's like turning that Titanic around, like we are doing this, we're going in this direction. This is our, how we know to do things. And someone like coming in to tell you what's rethink the value of this is really hard to hear.
1: So yeah, I appreciate you giving a nod to our three lanes. So does it make sense to you that, and and I didn't figure, I had not figured this out. The three lanes concept that we use with our consulting team, for example, was something that I came up with uh, originated. I was working this out with um, in graduate school and I was working it out through the lens of sort of understanding the complexity between a a series of gifts that donors completely irregardless of the size of the gift, the donors actually sort of move through a, a complexity of, types of gifts that are informed by different types of relationships, if you will. And that first lane, which you're familiar with, that first lane essentially, in my mind, oftentimes represents this, this consumer-like, commodity-like exchange. And we're oftentimes selling, you know, whether it's something tangible or not, we're oftentimes selling the donor something. And that when we move into that middle lane, the, the relationship becomes much more citizen-like, it becomes much more rooted in the community, Um, and it becomes much less of a transaction, uh, because the, because whatever is being exchanged is rooted in the relationship. And so that's the point at which, for example, Michelle, we're oftentimes saying to our clients, stop, stop selling things to your donors, whether it's tangible or intangible. Stop putting their names on the side of buildings. You know, stop, stop selling them tote bags, you know, and there's a whole range of things every, every, everywhere in between, but stop selling them things. Does that make sense?
2: yes yes yeah it does and again like i think that this kind of efficiency model this it's built on a lot of for profit ways of being and ways of doing but what so we take we take that from them but one yeah. thing i think we don't take from the for-profit world is all of the space they give themselves to be innovative to try things to test things like I think we've, we're very selective in the frameworks that we apply to us. And the only way that you always see, you know, those charts pointing up to the right of like growth, 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 you know, more sales, more sales. The reason that that is coming about is because of also at the same time, space they give to test and just try stuff. And we need to definitely get better at doing that. And then we would find different frameworks that really work well for us.
1: So what are you saying? So what are you saying to the, uh, to, to the fundraiser who's a couple of years in who's trying to make sense of this, who perhaps cause this is the angst that I'm constantly wrestling with. Cause I'm usually, you know, if I'm talking to a, you know, a couple of years in, I, I see them getting very much, their, their entire professional identity sort of gets wrapped up in that. In that exchange, that that very transactional, what I call Lane One, consumer-like sort of exchange, and I want them to experience um, so as to not develop what I feel like because one of the one of the things Michelle, my, one of the things that concerns me about some that that going back to that smoothie, what's emerging from that smoothie of conversations is there seems to be a resentment that sort of is rising from younger fundraisers. Towards the donor because we've sat in this transactional consumer like fundraising for so long. I haven't said this on the podcast with anybody yet. So you're sort of getting this. This is this is this is an original question here for you. <laughs> so so we seem to be having sat in this transactional like fundraising for so long, and now having these smoothie of these smoothies of conversations, we've developed a form of sort of resentment towards the donor. When when because that transactional nature of the relationship is not working anymore, it's not adequate, it's not sufficient, the expectations are not high enough. Does that make sense? You're not going to get enough money. You're not going to get resourced enough if your expectation of that donor is just essentially what they're going to give you on Giving Tuesday. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it does. And I, I think like a lot of that angst and frustration from the younger fundraisers, it's stemming from the position that they're in like you have a traditional framework of these efficient you know i'm using air quotes these so-called efficient processes and that's an expectation that's placed down upon you from your senior leaders but at the same time you know you're hearing a lot of ccf conversation and Uh um you know like these more progressive community organizations they're saying but Donor behavior is a more important factor to be gauging than just dollars donated. And so they're in like this, <laughs> literally in stuck in the middle of you know, you're you're trying to make a name for yourself, you're young, you're trying to be successful, but like everything is changing all while you're rising, you know, in your career. And that's a really hard place to be in because you don't have the positional power to really make the changes I think that a lot of us want to see, which happens really at the CEO or level. I mean, let's be honest, you know, so I think it's I a lack of power that is like probably the source of their frustration.
1: I don't get the impression when I've listened and I've been studying, watching, listening to everything that's coming out of the CCF community, probably more so than the other conversations. I don't get a sense that they want to sit down at the lunch table with the donor. And form that relationship to so, as to, so as to raise the expectation of that donor, so as to remove the restrictions that they might have on the gift, so as to not make it transactional. I don't get the impression that they want to have lunch with the donor so as to raise all those expectations that can only happen when you're exchanging a true gift and when, you're, when you actually have a relationship between two human beings,
2: yeah, i push back on that, uh, Jason, because I do think that actually they, uh, the CCF community actually embedded this in one of their 10 principles. I forget what number it is, but one of the principles is, you know, we treat donors as partners. And that means sometimes having uh, difficult conversations with them. Right. And that yeah. can be a whole host of conversations, social justice conversations, values conversations, et cetera. And I think that they're really pushing for people to do that and to and I think the question becomes like, as a fundraiser, you know are those spaces safe for you to act in that role you know where what does that really look like when it's successful and then of course, you know, as a fundraiser, you have limited power in that exchange as well. but I do think that there is a huge advocacy on behalf of the movement to get people in those more stickier, messy conversations um And we probably need to talk about that more like as a movement to make that more visible.
1: I I, I think a lot about um, one of my previous guests on here. Oh gosh. I don't know how long ago it was. Um, Tim and I talked a lot about Fieri's work and Fieri, Paulo Fieri, basically his solution, a lot of his sort of remedy to the sort of the inequities and the injustices and solving oppression and stuff um, ultimately comes down to dialogue. And I remember reading this stuff in, in some graduate courses that I took, um, and I just thought, "Gee whiz, isn't this the problems?" So going back to sort of the, the 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 challenge that I originally introduced in my first book is that we've designed fundraising to be sort so rooted in these transactional type exchanges, and then we and we oftentimes recruit young people to come into these roles. They're fascinated with the technology. They're fascinated with the efficiency. For example. You know, you walk around the AFP exhibit hall and everything, you know, um, but they're not having this, this, uh, these dialogues that Fieri talks about that, that moves you towards that place where you can break down that injustice where you can break. He called it false. He called it false generosity. He basically said, look, you can't, you can't just let these people off the hook. You got to push the conversation. I don't Mm -hmm. know how you're going to do that if you're not having lunch or if you're not buying them coffee or something. You're going to have to buy that cup of coffee.
2: Yeah, I often, I talk to so many younger fundraisers, like newer to the field and both young in age as well. And I always tell them, you know, like find shops to where, like, you know that they're having those kinds of one-on-one conversations so you can be a part of that. I know, Jason, you've mentioned a couple of times that like one of your early bosses that she took you out like on, calls and you learned a lot I
1: mean uh, Danielle yes Danielle
2: yeah and I think like we all need a Danielle and I think the crazy thing though Jason is it's harder to find a Danielle nowadays than maybe it was (laughs) back when you were first learning maybe not I mean that's just my anecdotal evidence but you know but it doesn't mean you still can't try to be picky about where you go and I think that you know younger fundraisers in particular, they need to be more picky about who they're learning from
1: so what's your thoughts on um because I've had this conversation i, I had this conversation with uh, mazarine who who the conversation actually broadcast about two two three episodes before this one. It actually' is not it hasn't actually aired yet, but it's the distinction that I made in the first book, and it's between that that initial and that subsequent gift. Can we solve some of the problems that these different, these smoothie of conversations are sort of creating? Can we solve some of this if we just encourage fundraisers to not sign on for jobs that do not have them securing the initial gift, which is to say, let the direct response, let the outsource the responsibility to the direct response company. Let the volunteers get it. Let, let, let somebody else secure in the most efficient ways possible. The initial gift, that first gift, and then you spend your time fundraiser, full time employee fundraiser, securing meaning, first and foremost meaningful conversations, and then raising the bar as hell, you know, as high as you possibly can, um, and as unrestricted as you possibly can with subsequent gifts. Does that make sense?
2: I mean, it does, and I wonder, do you think, Jason, isn't this the model that universities use? I mean, for the most I part... I think it's
1: exactly the model I think so going back to graduate school Michelle so I was I was working at, in graduate school I was trying to answer the question what what are the small what are the small shops not know that the big shops do right what mm-hmm. what do they distinctively know and does Stanford for example actually have the advantage of extremely wealthy donors in the large database or is there something fundamentally different about the way they think about this and you're exactly right Michelle I think For example, higher education and medicine and these other larger, you know, large, huge mega shops know that the that the majority of fundraisers do not need that are on the payroll don't need to spend their time chasing after the initial gift. The initial gift can be secured in the most, you know, I mean, shit, you don't even have to. Nowadays, Facebook can can secure the initial gift for you. Right. And so, and so do we need to convince, do more of these young, going back to that young fundraiser I was referring to a few minutes ago, do they need to hear the message from people like you and I that don't sign on for a job description that has you having anything to do with the initial gift? Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, that's interesting because it, it makes me just reflect back on all of the recent job descriptions I've seen. You've looked at, always, right. Yeah, and they're always so crazy no matter what level you're looking at, development assistant or like team development officer and you're like, how is one person doing all this? Like, that's impossible. Yes. But you're right, like at an entry level, it's even probably harder to really wrap your mind around are these expectations reasonable? And so to have people like us just out the chute say, don't do it. <laughs> you know, red flag. Don't do it. I think that's a, that's, I think that that could be something.
1: Okay. Okay. So, but, but, but the advice you get, the, the advice you're talking about a few moments ago. So there, there's a woman in our space. She's a baby boomer, you know, highly respected, you know, routinely speaking at AFP conferences, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember reading in the Chronicle Chronicle of Philanthropy, um, the, you know, this was a number of years ago, and she said very blatantly, she said to young fundraisers, don't go work for big for small shops, work for big shops. And I thought, how are the small shops, the small shops that are generally for, for example, rallying around the, the the values at CCF, for example, our friends at community-centered fundraising, if we're taking that advice and we're always gravitating towards the large shops, because they put fundraisers, young fundraisers, in subsequent gift oriented roles you know how are we ever going to get there and and so like what we do with our three lanes we tell our clients we say look lane 1 doesn't belong to your fundraisers lane 1 belongs to your volunteers you contract a special event to an you know, to a, a an event planning firm in town, and you and you hire a direct response company to run your mail program. There's there's a direct response, co- you know, company in every city in this country, and they can run it just fine. And then you hire the Jason or the Michelle to pick up the phone once those gifts come in, say thank you, start the relationship on a thank you call, and take those people out to lunch and have those meaningful conversations that we're
2: talking about. Yeah, the only thing I would push back about, well, I don't know if it's a if it's a strict pushback, but a clarification on the small shops versus large shops. I think you can have great experiences in small shops. I think one reason that so much is put on the fundraisers or the frontline fundraisers to where you know you're doing back end and front end stuff all the time. It's because you don't have like the right synergy between communications, marketing and fundraising. I think a lot of times in the smaller shops, what tends to go wrong, not always, yeah. is that a lot of communications work is placed on the fundraising side. But yeah. if you kind of push that back over to comms marketing, you know, then I do think small shops could have more donor facing meetings. You know, oh, I, some okay.
1: people don't get that me that wrong. Don't get me wrong, I completely disagree with the woman, this woman I'm referring to, this baby boomer fundraising guru out there. Um, I completely disagree with her because I'm an advocate for the small shops and I think a lot of the people that again CCF's lit talking to um people that you and I are probably trying to influence and and, and the places where young fundraisers want to gravitate towards, the where the, those places where I think they want to do the grassroots sort of work. And so um, you know, one of the things we talk about at Responsive is that we're all about organizational design. We don't think fundraising's the problem. We think the organizations have sort of incorrectly designed the way these operations are supposed to work. And And if we could just get fundraisers, if we could just get, you know, young Michelle and young Jason to show up. Going back to even going back to my role at the Epilepsy Foundation with Danielle that you, you that we referenced a moment ago, she didn't have me interacting with donors who had not given their first gift. It was all subsequent gift-oriented work, and it just made for it made for a much more productive, higher margins. All the efficiency got resolved, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Does that right. make sense? Yes, it does. And I, and I wonder if you experienced this, like when you worked with Danielle, I think now there's like this obsession with senior leaders, too, about the acquisition through, you know, social media, online giving, paid ads, etc. And so, so much attention is given there. I mean, even just like push giving days aside, but just... Just communicating online in a broad and compelling way that you actually are getting people in the pipeline, but then there's no one downstream to connect with and build relationships with them. And I feel like that's a huge problem. Primarily, I would place that on the shoulders of CEOs and like the senior teams. Oh, oh, oh,
1: oh! I would say it's our gurus, it's our wizards, it's the wizards that I am constantly picking on. It's the yeah. industry wizards that upset. The thing is, and you mentioned efficiency earlier. Any efficient machine, then that's that's my major critique with direct response. I don't think direct response is, is evil. I think dir- direct response, for example, is highly efficient, and anything that that is highly efficient needs to be given a cap. It needs to be put. You got to put a governor on it you got to put a limit on it but 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 because direct response for example is so effective and it appeals to our consumer Mm -hmm. impulses what it ends up doing is is it if you're the fundraiser if you're the young soul fundraiser in a small shop and you've got responsibilities in lane one and lane two you'll never do lane two work you can't Mm -hmm. ride the fit you can't that's why we that's why we use the lane analogy how often can anybody drive in two lanes it just creates a it creates a mess and lane one's always going to win.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like, speaking of, you know, we started out talking about multiple disciplines and, and I think that here, you know, we need to think about principles and change management. You know, you have to be confident when you're solving for a problem and you're like actually applying solutions that you identified that problem correctly, right? Like the root cause analysis probably has to be pretty spot on for your solutions to work. And I think that, you know, the gurus and the CEOs, they're identifying the problem incorrectly. The problem isn't the acquisition bringing new people in. No, it's, it's that not. that
0: stewardship piece like we yes have.
2: retention ma'am. With our say it louder. <laughs> Acquisition's not our problem,
1: but we have job descriptions that say nothing but acquisition. And down at the very bottom, you know, you see this, you've seen these job descriptions. It's like 12 different items on it, and 10 of them are about acquisition, and two of them are about stewardship and major gifts. And and you can't get through all of the first ten, and yet it's 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 eleven and twelve that are actually going to create the margin, and it's actually going to. This is what Mazarine and I were talking about. We're all reading Edgar's book, for example. You can't actually have decolonizing wealth type conversations without getting into what we call the messy middle lane. If you're mm-hmm. not at the bre- if you're not at the coffee table don't worry about reading Ed- Edgar's book because you can't have that type of conversation with direct response.
2: Right, right. Yeah, and I saw your post this morning, Jason, about, you know, with the you know, recession and economic times are always going to be in flux, right? Like that's not a new thing. But yeah, we're, we just have to think more in the long term, right? Like we're so short-term thinkers and we just feel for some reason some comfort with that framework applied but like we have to be able to build these relationships to where they're sustainable to where we can have conversations like if there is a recession or when there is a recession you know that we have relationships to fall back on that we're not in the middle of trying to you know hint our business cards and meet people in the wake of disaster like that's not where we want to be
1: Yeah. So before I let you go, because we we only hold on to our listeners for 40 minutes or so, but I really want to sort of drive this point home because, and this is what has excited me about the brief conversations you and I have had. And the idea of collaborating and stuff, and just the energy that sort of comes from the smoothie of of, of directions that we've gone here in this conversation. But is is fundraising is is what is emerging from these various different conversations? The necessity that our expertise emerge from things more like sociology and anthropology than basically the marketplace. Because I feel like that's essentially the 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 battleground that we haven't like like our friends in C- at CCF and 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 what uh what uh what our donor participation project friends are not sort of saying is is you got to stop listening to the gurus in the marketplace and you got to start talking to people like Michelle who actually have a background in other sort of domains that have a much greater appreciation for how relationships work does that make sense
2: yeah, it does. And I think also too, a lot of this is in our ability to rethink something that we once knew or we once really felt was right. Like we also need like to be agile and adapt because I think our convictions of what success looks like and what leads to success can lock us in prisons of our own making. You know, yeah, and we just yeah. need to like be able to reevaluate what's really happening here.
1: When I was in – so, Michelle, uh, I, I – I, so when I was – when I got into fundraising 25 years ago, you could be a fundraiser and you could spend your entire year running a direct mail program, right?
2: Mm-hmm. An
1: entire – you know, if you were the – especially if you were in a smaller shop and you were young and you were new and you didn't know what else to do, you could spend your whole year running – and I worked at a small children's home – And you could, you could administer. And if the program had been established and it was running well, you could run that thing all the time. And, and I think when, when you getting back to your comment a few minutes ago about innovation, I think innovation in that, in that lane one fundraising category has, has been maxed. What giving Tuesday does on a single day does in, in many ways, what an entire year required me to do at that children's home, for example. What I can accomplish in a single day with, say, Giving Tuesday in the fall and, a you know, in a community-wide give day in the spring, I can, accompl- I can cover most of my new acquisition bases. And so I think innovation in lane one has already been done. And I just wonder if we need to get more innovative about how we, like these job descriptions, do we just need to... Do we need to write job descriptions that draw draw a a clear line between lanes one and two? And do we need to draw a clear line between how much time Michelle and Jason can spend in that lane? Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like what I see here, Jason, again, it's like this uncomfort, discomfort in change. Like we know the job descriptions suck, you know what I mean. Like we know, like it's terribly written. We just kind of push them out because that's what we've always done it this way. And I think that we're just witnessing our who's own the most grappling with, with you know, becoming what we need to be. Who's the most?
1: Who's who's the most? Okay, so we've got the gurus. We got what I call the wizards. We got people like you. We got people like you and I that are involved in these this smoothie of conversations. Um, and then we got the frontline fundraiser who's more experienced versus the the two year in less than two year in who's who's the most fearful of change? I mean, I I'm not fearful of change, but I don't have a non I mean, all, all I've got is my clients, and they don't even have to take my advice. So I'm not the change <laughs> I'm not the change resistant guy. <laughs> I can say whatever the hell I want to, and it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. If my clients don't do it, it doesn't matter. So who who's Who's the most resistant to change? Is it my baby boomer executive you know uh, guru who 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 maybe doesn't have this right?
2: I don't think that we can strictly chalk it up to age, but I think the answer is it's the people for whom these past frameworks brought them success. Ooh. And I think that they began yeah. to form their identity around that Ooh. success. And so this is, you know, threatening their identity who they know themselves to be. And, and yeah. that's a really scary place to reside in. But I think yeah. we all need to be open to rethinking what once worked.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It remind the, yeah, the, the, the idea of being able to drop your tools. And I mean, when I started, Michelle, when I started in fundraising, it was, it was, I started in 2001. So, I mean, I've, I've raised money all in the 21st century. The internet was sort of just becoming a real thing. Um, you know, we had had it for a while, but, you know, in college, for example, we all had to go to the library to get email. And now email is literally on our phones, for example. And it's, it's a primary way of raising money now for a lot of us. Um, I I think, I, I think there's an old guard that's still stuck in the 20th century. Um, and, uh, and I think they're the, my, you know, as a rhetorical question, the answer to, to my own question, I, th- I think you've got a, a, a sort of an old guard of wizards that have tools that were f- designed in the 20th century and, and, and they're not working in the 21st century. Giving Tuesday, I think giving Tuesday is remarkably powerful, but if I'm going to do giving Tuesday and I'm going to do my lo- local give day, I don't need a year's worth of direct mail at the same time. Right. Because I just acquired, I've got, we've got our local give day here recently, Michelle, you know, we raise, you know, 300 organizations participate, 300 organizations participate, they raised somewhere shy of $4 million here recently, and it's only been only been doing it for five years, but there were 11,000 transactions. There were 11,000 transactions. How many initial gifts do you really need to, you know, if you divide that up between the 300 charities that participated, how much new acquisition do you really need? Um, the question is, is did, in my mind, is, is did 11,000 thank you calls get made? And how many of those 11,000 initial gifts turn into coffee table conversations about what Edgar's writing in his book?
2: Right. Yeah, this comes to mind, like the BlackBerry example, you know, the founder of BlackBerry, how he had their, the story goes, he had many people on his team that told him for years, like, you need to switch from the traditional keyboard on the BlackBerry, which everybody loved. That was its, you know, key feature to yeah. a touchscreen. And he was like, people don't want touchscreen. People like the keyboard. People like the keyboard. And he oh, just good. failed to innovate. And because people would tell him, walk into his office and say, like, it's coming, you know, like other people are creating products with touchscreens, it's going to be a thing. And they didn't pivot in time. And now we all have iPhones and touchscreens, you know, so I just don't want that to happen to us.
1: I, I was just explaining, <laughs> Michelle. I I don't know how old you are. I know you're younger than I am, but so I was explaining to my kids the other day. You, I, I don't know if you, I don't even know if you know this, um, but so Michelle, when I was a kid, and there's plenty of my listeners who know this. So I I grew. I was a, I was in high school in the 90s, and we rented videotapes. So it's the it's the same analogy you're talking about the blackberry between between Blockbuster Video and um, and Netflix, right? Mm-hmm. And and my generation of kids in the, in high school in the '90s basically had to uh, make sure that we had their videotapes rewound. Do, are you familiar with that? Yes. I can yes, yes, yes. I can figure out how old you. Are <laughs> <laughs> without being so rude and obtuse and asking you how old you are, I can ask you: Have you ever had? Have you ever panicked on your way back to the video store with a videotape that hasn't been rewound? And my kids sort of just, you know, my my four teenagers sort of just looked at me like, "We don't know what the hell you're talking." <laughs> 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 but but that's exact that you're exactly right. That I, I remember the BlackBerry and I had one for a long time, um, and the Palm Pilots sort of followed that a little. They kind of followed the same idea in some ways with the little uh, the little pen looking thing. Um, but as soon as the iPhone made sense, those other little gadgets went away.
2: Right, right. And you're seeing this, Jason, through things like GoFundMe. Like there's other yeah. kinds of fundraising innovations, right, that people are po- popping up all the time. I mean,
1: I, I think I think GoFundMe, GoFundMe, in my mind, is a, is a remarkable, perhaps remarkable initiative that, that that I would put in that lane. One, again, I would say that there's all these different this sort of uh, what one author calls sort of this. She calls it the uh, woman at Stanford calls it sort of this commodification of fundraising uh, applications. It's, it's not a democracy it's not democratizing. It's just commodifying the myriad of ways with which you can give these gifts. And most of them are very focused on that initial gift. I think GoFundMe, for example, is a great example that if organizations could sort of figure out how to just secure, how to let that system secure their first gift so that the Michelles and the Jasons on the back end can can acknowledge that gift in a meaningful way and move that relationship in such a direction so that they don't so if they don't give the second gift through that same platform. We can actually make GoFundMe our friend rather than what I see mm-hmm. a lot of us complaining about it. Like it's our enemy.
2: Right. Agreed.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't, I think, I, I think I hijacked about half, at least half the conversation we'll have to have you back. Uh, but uh, I, I, I certainly enjoy these conversations with people so, who sort of hail from other disciplines. And I appreciate you putting on the uh, putting on, on the, on the, on the agenda today, Michelle, if somebody's listening to our conversation and they want to reach out to you, they probably heard something in between my myriad of rants and raves um, and they want to follow up with you and have a conversation. How would you suggest that they do that?
2: Yeah, there's two ways to connect with me. I guess my number one preferred would be through LinkedIn. So easy yeah. to find me there. And then also if you're on the community centric fundraising Slack channel, which there's about 5,500 people on that Slack channel. If yeah. you're on there, just you know, DM me on there. I'm very active and would love to start a conversation that way as well.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. I was not. I was not aware. I was not aware of that. Yeah. So if you we'll make sure to get, put some uh, information uh, both so they can find you and find the Slack channel uh, in the show notes, Michelle. It's been a pleasure to get to know you, and you're always welcome back.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Jason.